This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. Welcome to Clued In with Lou Carbone, a thought-provoking opportunity to expand your perspectives and advance the impact you can make in the CX, EX, and patient experience space. Lou's undeniable combination of the depth of experience and knowledge in this space is unparalleled. As a driver inside organizations as well as consulting, Lou offers distinctive thought stimulation, is a dedicated mentor and teacher. Hello. I am so thrilled to have a dear friend, a mentor, a guide uh, in understanding uh, broad marketing principles uh, from a gentleman who is a physicist and actually understands the physics of brand. And uh, there are pendulum theories. There are all sorts of wonderful theories that a physicist brings to marketing. And Ralph has been a professor of marketing for many years at Penn State as a uh, professor of marketing emeritus. However, going back into, as I know, Ralph, actually teaching an MBA course. I couldn't resist. Uh, Yes, I couldn't. I couldn't resist. And uh, it it turns out circumstances on campuses around the country have changed. And uh, it was a time where they uh, they were glad to have me jump back in and I'm, I'm happy to be, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to being um, with masks on, true, but uh, we'll be together with students uh, live here uh, on campus in a, a few days. So Rob's study of B2B uh, organizations is probably one of the, he knows more about B2B practitioners, the challenges that they face, the um, the need for shared learning, uh, mutual trust, communication within B2B companies, and has fostered that at ISBM for many years as the executive director. And what we see as dynamic changes uh, moving out of the industrial age, my co-author in one of the, uh, the, not one of, but the first article that was written on experience management systems uh, was uh, Stephen Heckel, who was at IBM as the director of strategic studies. And as we move out of this world, uh, Steve talked about, and, and I talked about at that time, moving from the world of make and sell to the world of sensing and responding. And uh, the example that we used was that the world of make and sell, which was primarily the industrial age, was built on process and efficiency. And that uh, that world uh, that many organizations lived in, both B2B and consumer, was much like a bus, a bus and a bus driver. And you had a spent route. It was a process. You followed the process. Uh, You might improve the process a little bit uh, for efficiency. And in fact, in London, there was a story about a bus driver who cut out two stops, Ralph, (laughs) to actually be more effective on the timing and the efficiency, but the customers were ignored. And what Steve uh, put forth was this concept of 
sensing and responding that an organization needed to be much more adaptive to consumer needs, uh, whether it's B2B uh, or whether it was uh, customers. And it's much more like being an Uber driver that you're there with a set of capabilities. You don't exactly know what the needs are immediately, but it's very bespoke in terms of pulling together those capabilities to accomplish what the customer wants to accomplish rather than pushing a product onto well, this, a uh, it, this is this whole story the bus driver thing reminds me of a great quote from one of the isbm fellows uh, dr mohan sani from kellogg says uh, when you're on the wrong bus every stop is the wrong stop <laughs> and then um you know the the idea that uh, um, wait a minute uh, are we on the right bus and and the other thing is again moving to the sense and respond what about now? I mean, can we really describe the markets that we will be playing in uh, while they're so turbulent? I mean, we we're, you know, then we always say, well, markets are always changing. That's true. But is it has there ever been a rate of change and a, and a level of uncertainty as we're as we're doing this podcast right now? You know, the it, it's just a very uncertain time. So you can try, in fact, in getting ready for my class coming up. I've stopped trying to do what are brands, what is brand management in today's day and age going to be like? I've abandoned that. It's really how can you set up an approach to constantly learn, sense what's going on in your market? Because during the next few years of marketing practice, it'll be changing so rapidly. That's not going to be an episodic thing to really check what is the experience my customers need. What do they really need? That's not going to be, well, let's do that once a quarter or once a year and then we'll know. That's going to be real time sensing in terms of in real time responding. Can we equip our firm and our assets in a way that couples to these needs so that we can move quickly? How how rigid? And again, I know there's I have to be careful of using this word because it's a reserve word. It, it's it's a general, you know, it's agile. Okay, so there's agile practice, which has a whole litany of things that go with it, scrums and and sprints and other things. And then there's the word agile, which just means you're fast on your feet. You can you can change direction quickly. And they both those things both do connect with each other. But the idea that um, sense and respond and particularly the sense part of it now is going to be so much part of our practice. And what are you doing by way of um, I guess there's a broad collection of um, things that we're always studying that that are under the rubric voice of the customer. Well, that that that's a process at ISBM that we kind of revere. The the original words on that were crafted by a lady named Abby Griffin at the University of Utah, who is credited with inventing the term and the practice. But it's the real time sort of stuff that you do with clue mapping. Uh, Lou, that that you're really whoa. What what is happening every step of the way? Can we spot the clues that the customers are giving us today, and will they be the same three weeks from now if the Delta variant goes completely crazy? Will they be the same five months from now? Where will we be five months from now? Um, you know, coming out of the pandemic. And and beyond that, you know, uh, how do we create the sense side of what we do and build an enterprise that can respond to that? Or are we a bus? 
And, um, you know, we're, we're going to drive the bus better and better and better. And that's the, I guess that's one way to do the business. Yeah. But I don't I don't think the demand patterns we're going to be seeing over the next few years will allow for too many rigid constructs on the on the part of uh, business. Also. And again, this may be blasphemous. I think we're going to have to take a look at all of the cost squeeze that we've done in previous years. Build, you know, you, you, know, you just lean it out, lean it out, lean it out to the point where we have no slack to enable us to sense and respond. Because, um, well, we're seeing right now that, you know, none, no company is an island. We're part of a web of value from raw materials to data to the sort of support we need. All of which are undergoing its own little, little private hell of stress right now. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, in order for you to really be able to respond, what are the relationships you have through the value chain that you can draw on now to focus on the customers that need you the most with the with the right sort of um, of answers to their questions, the right sort of experiences. So again. Um, at the ISBM, we're studying the, this idea of what are the continuous techniques by which you study the market continuously. And, and again, these are not episodic. These, are, these have to be wired in now at the front end of, of almost every day. Absolutely. And then how do you build an enterprise that takes advantage of the assets you have but uses them flexibly enough to respond to, to the markets that we really don't have a, a good clear view of now? And uh, so, Ralph, when we look at that idea of agile and the distinction between agile and adaptive with yeah. with, with uh, Steve was so huge. And I hear the word pivot so often. Yeah, God, yeah. And, and pivot means let me just find another process. And in fact, uh, Taco Bell just introduced that they're building their first total drive through pre-order uh, store. And I wonder whether that's adaptive or is that pivoting? And what, what Heckel would say is uh, that we need to get into the mind of the customer and that we're advancing beyond voice of the customer into the mind of the customer and understanding those unconscious. This is the work we've done with Jerry Zaltman. Sure. HBR over the years was really understanding, uh, not HBR, but HBS. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah, no, but understanding those unconscious constructs and the mind of the customer. And I know that you're doing work with Liam Fay, and I know that he dealt uh, and was working with an organization that also did emotion mining in terms of. That's true. And in terms of those pieces. So, again, and you, you can ask the question like of Taco Bell, is it. Is this just one big experiment? to try to get into the mind of the customer. What data are they gathering? And again, if uh, you, if Jerry Zaltman and you were involved in this, uh, you know, you, you go, okay, let's wire this thing up so we can read the emotion on people's faces. Let's just check it from the moment they hit. And then once they leave, can we possibly find a way to follow up with these folks and, um, and, and really understand what was the experience, what worked, what didn't, and then beyond that, what need was being served here? And and what needs were we not serving here? Exactly. And, and really getting down into that. And this plays, I think, big time, even in deep B two B. It's you know, you know, you, yeah, we delivered we delivered that load of liquid nitrogen, and they needed it. 
Uh, what else? But there are there are six firms that could sell that liquid nitrogen. How can we differentiate ourselves in in giving firms what they really what what have we not learned? And by the way, what what will that need look like in the market moving forward? So again, there's there's this this whole area, and again, you can call it by many names. Um, voice of the customer is one broad way of looking at it. But unfortunately, that word I've talked to Abby Griffin about. It, I said, you know, it doesn't go deep enough because you are you're getting to the mind of the customer, the emotion of the customer. The, if if you do this well, you're getting customers B to B and B to C to reveal things that that they can't normally call to consciousness. Exactly. And um and and you know. And, and again, I, I think in B2B, to be candid, many, many times when I'm doing this, at the core, when you really cut through the political correct, the, the right answer, all of that, and, the, and you should excuse the expression bullshit, down to where it's really happening, a lot of times, why did you buy that? And the real answer is because I was afraid. And there's a great example that you have. You introduced me to a firm that I was so impressed by. Um, and their reason for being and their understanding uh, was so amazing. And um, yeah. you you have a long-standing relationship and admiration. Yeah, this uh, yeah, the firm you're referring to then is Swagelock. Okay. Yes. And. Uh, so my love affair with that firm started while I was getting my thesis done. And uh, my thesis involved very low temperatures. So that involved very high vacuums because we were dealing with liquid helium, which was at the time pretty expensive, it still is. And um, so I got very tired of coming into the lab every morning. And the first thing I had to do was hunt down a vacuum leak. So finally, after I railed at my professor, I was a young thing at the time, and he, I, I, I just said, look, we, we, need to, we need to completely rework this vacuum system. And he goes, okay, we have some money in the contract. Let's buy nothing but swage lock parts. So we put swage lock everywhere. And then all of a sudden, there was never a problem again. I could get right down to getting data. I didn't have to. So that, that was way back when I was knee high. And um, so the chance to work with swage lock and that their, their fundamental essential core value is, if your life depends on it, we're there with you. Yeah, you know, yeah, their stuff costs more. And in fact, they, they can do segmentation. You know, if, if they're talking with a customer where price is the real object, well, it's really not their customer. And they say, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. You just, but, um, you know, one of the stories that, um, and by the way, this goes very deep in terms of the experience. It's not just the frontline people at Swagelock who are great, the design engineers who would help people design systems. And Lou was there and know that if you, if you go into the plant there in Solon, Ohio, if they let you on in, you see a few things. You see people who are incredibly dedicated and know the brand and can recite it. Deep in their soul, they know I'm building stuff that lives depend on here. Okay. Yeah, I, I may be turning a lathe. I may be building, you know, the, the component of this valve, but it's got to be perfect because lives depend on it. It absolutely can't leak. It absolutely can't not fill its function. Okay. The other thing that you see at Swage Lock is a whole bunch of parts, a big, big stock. You know, my MBA students, when we, we went there on a 20, go, wow, you know, geez, look at all this, look at all of the capital they have tied up in, um, in finished goods inventory here. 
And, you know, so they happened to mention it to one of the people on the line who smiled and went, yes, uh, yeah, we've heard that. When our customers need parts from us, they need them immediately. And, and we can't wait till the next run to serve the needs of our customers. We have to be able to respond. And we have a lot of data on what it takes to respond. And yeah, we build the stock we need to do that. That's just part of our brand and who we are. So the experience with them, it, it, you know, goes very, very deep. And it, it's just amazing. Every employee, everyone I would talk to, whether they were packing stuff in boxes, and then they're, they're swage lock customers that are willing, they have a story that they put a video on that, where one of their customers was a firm called Avantech that was called upon to deal with the Fukushima reactor disaster. And they got called upon an emergency basis with the challenge. There are many, many gallons of highly radioactive water about to get launched into the Sea of Japan. Come save us. You've got to find a way to fix this. And uh, so it was an all hands on deck thing. And the level, the level, by the way, of contamination of this water was way beyond what they thought it was when they, they went there and sized it up. So Avantech swung into action and built, and they needed stuff from Swage Lock round the clock. And this is one of these, as I'm teaching brand management now, one of the things we've learned from uh, from, from two geniuses, um, uh, it's a David and Jennifer Acker, I think I've got them, the names right, is uh, something called a signature story. Yeah. It's a story that really reflects the core values and the essential characteristics of your brand. And and this is one of their signature stories. And the and the signature stories are often best told by your customers that said, we had to crunch this. And we went right through the whole 4th of July holiday, just right, like it wasn't even there. And there are some vendors that say, well, we'll shut down now and we'll see you on the, uh, we'll see you on Monday. Swagelock never missed a beat. They were there with us all the time. They understood. They not time for barbecue. We'll do that later. We're, you know, and you could see the passion and even some of the tears in the eyes of the Avantech people that said, we pulled this off and prevented the disaster. We weren't sure we could. But um, so these, the thing that Swagelock knows and I think we're, I've talked to you about this, Lou. I'm working with Dr. Liam Fahey now on um, a, a trying to reframe what makes a winning customer value proposition. Now, there have been components of value we've talked about for years. Functional value. Is this better? Will this do things better than the next best alternative? Economic value. Will this save me money or make me money better than the next best alternative? Emotional value. Will I feel better about myself for when I engage with this offering in this brand than anything else. But what we've added is the relational value. What is the relationship that came before I bought this offering? And what will the relationship be after I use this offering? And how does that go? Well, Swage Lock knew way before a lot of other firms that that relational value is what gets them higher price. It would gets them specked in to to the right sorts of, uh, of jobs. And in fact, there are other signature stories, and I've actually seen some of this at my former job at Texas Instruments, where a whole laboratory will get outfitted, and the person outfitting the lab has cost constraints. Then the people coming to run the laboratory come and go, who put all this stuff here? Get it all out of here and put Swagelock stuff in here. 
you know, swage lock, that costs so much money. I said, look, I, I put swage lock stuff in here, um, and, and that's the bottom line. If this stuff leaks, you know, we're dealing with, you know, uh, doping gases here that are highly poisonous. We're not going to kill the whole neighborhood. We're making semiconductors, but we will kill the whole building if this stuff leaks. So, you know, we're not going to save some nickels and dimes on this. We want the bet. We want to know that we've invested in the best there is. And I want to go home and sleep tonight knowing that. And that is purely the relational value. And but that doesn't happen overnight, or even if you've built the best part, that doesn't happen. You, you, that, that's with all of the company knowing what the brand stands for. That, and that, relational, for that. that relational, relational experience. Uh, Ralph, there's a, a theory that you've had uh, that is so fascinating to me, uh, I, and you refer to it as the pendulum theory. And I see this in, in so many different ways. Uh, in B2B, I've watched organizations that go from direct to uh, using uh, dealers and, and, and uh, manufacturers reps. And the pendulum swings periodically. All of a sudden, oh, God, our independent reps are making too much money. Let's move it inside. Oh, God, our people are making too much money. <laughs> let's let's. So there's that pendulum, but there's there's a series of pendulums you've been studying. Yeah, it's a uh, business. And again, as a physicist, I can say that watching uh, really over the years, uh, the 23 years I was at uh, ISBM and then the years before that at Texas Instruments, this idea that from five to seven years is sort of the period of this. That's just an empirical observation and I've seen it. So what does it look like? Again, you know, it's we'll see a very strong, largely centralized marketing function with very, very experienced, seasoned people doing great work um, on the one side. But then something happens and all of a sudden, uh, and I, and again, it's, it's trying to peel back. The research I'm doing is, all right, so what is the force driving this? Now, pendula are driven by gravity. There's a gravitational force doing this. And why, why do these pendulums swing so hard? Because the other thing that we've seen, and we've just seen this recently with several firms where the whole marketing department gets fired. And that's, uh, no, we're spending too much money on this. And we're, after all, we're in a commodity business. And it, I, I know, again, I don't want to get into name calling here, but it's usually driven by the finance side of the street. It's often driven in publicly held firms by someone who's decided that back in the 70s, they got the shareholder value virus and it's just taken over their entire body. And that in reality, that instead of my firm existing to go after the why that created us, the why now is for us to be a good part of a balanced portfolio. And that's what we're, we're, we're going to build a firm that looks great to Wall Street. So first thing we're going to do is cut cost out of here so that our return on net assets goes way up. Oh, by the way, why do we have any net assets at all? Why don't we outsource all this and get rid of all our assets? So Rona, the return on net assets goes way up. And you start cutting the soul out of the company um, and, the, and the why you were created to begin with, but it looks real good to Wall Street. And all of a sudden, stock price goes up. And this is um, a, a form of capitalism that I, I'm watching. And it's one of the things that characterizes these pendulous swings, because what happens to marketing in these firms is it gets very decentralized. And what it winds up being is a, um, a basket full of tactics that are all done at very low costs without a lot of direction. And um, a group of 
perhaps very, very good specialists without without a leader to say, here's what the brand means, here's where we're going, etc. Now, what happens though is it stays in that state for a while. And then something turns, either leadership turns or all of a sudden Wall Street has gotten tired of the fact that this firm has stopped growing. Yeah, it's running like a watch. All the indices look great, but where's the growth? Where's the innovation? Where's the next big thing? Where's it going? Well, and all of a sudden someone gets fired and a new CEO gets put in who basically says, oh my God, we've, we've killed the growth genes in this company. We have to reinstall them. So the pendulum begins swinging back and it typically starts with hiring some chief marketing officer or somebody who can reinstall the growth genes in the company. What would be nice is if we found a way to have this pendulum sort of dampen out and just kind of ride in the middle, you know, the golden mean, if you will. Um, and really what I'm researching now is a little bit better understanding of what, what are the forces here? What are the telltale signs? What are the things someone can do about it? Okay. And um, um, fundamentally though, one of the big problems here um, with this Lewis, and, and, and this is kind of maybe too philosophical for this discussion is what is the driving force here besides some of these pendulous swings? It's been around for a long, long time. It's just greed. It's biblical, you know. Yeah. A few people want to get rich. Sometimes it's an activist investor group. Sometimes, not that all of them are bad, but some of them are bad. We think, oh, well, you know, these indices don't look good. Cut the cost out of this thing. Make this look good, you know. And and it it takes a firm, takes their eye off the customer ball, and moves their eye to the Wall Street side. Now, I have a strong position on this that maybe not all of your uh, viewers will see, but value is not created on Wall Street. Wealth is created on Wall Street. Value is created in that magic space between a firm and its customers. That's where value happens. When firms do that well, they build a genuinely more valuable company and all the stockholders get a good long-term ride. But if what you're looking for is a good short-term ride, you can abrogate the value creating side of the company and just get rid of it, make the indices look good, make a fast hit, leave, and what you leave behind is a shell of what used to be. And there are a lot of examples of companies like that. God, that is so amazing. Um, there is a, a woman that I admire immensely that uh, had worked at Harley and uh, left Harley to work in uh, another business. I won't name the business. Uh, but there was a change in leadership, CEO uh, left, and all of a sudden everything in the company changed and it really went to extracting value versus creating value. And she was so taken by the shift and realized that it was literally the board of directors, the board of trustees or the board of directors that influence in one way or another uh, in terms of who they hire, what they're looking for, and that you're right, they're focused on value for Wall Street in terms of wealth creation. Uh, because they have a vested interest, they're shareholders, uh, that are granted shares, etc. And she came to the realization and made a complete career shift um, 
in terms of seeking board positions to influence boards around creating value for customers and the consistency of that and then the return that comes in terms of wealth creation if you do that which she experienced at harley and uh, yeah and if you know again recognizing what you want your brand to mean and what it stands for now again this sounds a little pollyanna but to me it's great business because it enables you to build relationships that give you the clues on how to create great offerings in a rapidly changing environment you have customers that will teach you and share with you what their underlying needs are in ways that are better than competitive alternatives um, that you know that 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 come from this so over the long term shareholders get a great ride and if you're in but if you're in it if you're in it like las vegas where you want to you know i want a quick hit a quick win etc or and the other thing is this return is not coming fast enough and that's another one is that you know r d takes a long time to pay off in some cases um this is a discussion i'd had with another again lou you're one of the foremost thought leaders i've had the privilege to learn from but i've had a, a chance to learn from a really great guy adrian zlowatsky who was um yes he was at um uh, at uh, oliver wyman uh for for a long while and and spoke he wrote a great little book that still is relevant today how to grow when markets don't a lot of it about sense and respond by the way and um picking up on um i think some of the things that you had written and um he was lamenting the fact that um you know he asked a very good question where's the next innovation coming that's going to create million jobs okay and um you know where is it really going to be you know, and he says the, the internet was the last, the really big one that that changed things. Yeah. Um, but that that happened as a result of a whole bunch of things that involved DARPA and and um, and and firms that had pure research labs that were creating the new world. But a lot of those labs have been dismantled now because their returns from them take a long, long time. I mean, like Xerox, I mean, I don't know, maybe some of your listeners won't even know, you know, Bell Labs, Xerox Park, um, right. uh, you know, yeah, the DuPont uh, uh, laboratories, the um, uh, the laboratories uh, uh, from Xerox, uh, the, 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 well, it was Xerox Park, but, and um, there hasn't really been, aside from some university coalitions, a replacement for those sorts of engines to create fundamentally new, new sorts of things. And um, now they, they're happening out there, but by and large now they're happening with small firms with great ideas. But to innovate at scale, to really innovate and take on big, big problems. Big problems like, you know, really, are we really going to solve? And I, one, one place I hope I, I, my children ask this question is so what's going to happen during our lifetime that we should care about? And I said, well, one of the things you should be looking for is a big breakthrough in energy storage technology, battery technology. Okay. Because if energy storage, and that's, that's not unreasonable to think that if energy storage all of a sudden was like a hundred times better than it is now then the promise of alternative energy and you know really deploying solar and wind and other kinds of energy um, gets into a better focus because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow the the idea that um, 
you know, well, what about controlled fusion? He says, well, controlled fusion has been 20 years away through my whole lifetime. I nearly went into fusion <laughs> research. You know, when I graduated uh, from college, it was 20 years away. When I graduated from grad school, it was 20 years away. <laughs> I think it's still 20 years away. Um, and of course, that's a, that's a little piece of mother nature not wanting to let us know just exactly, can you really reproduce what the sun does on earth? We, that's gonna take a while, guys. You're not gonna get that one easy. But um, so, but you know, why are there no big research labs outside of, you know, even in the university environment? Well, they don't produce a return instantly. You know, where's my, where's my money back? And um, so I think to a certain extent, we're off on something that fundamental to what capitalism is about and, and what firms are about. So maybe, you know, I think I have to credit and he even mentions that he's a journalist. And I think that's what journalists do is recognize as Simon Sinek with the start with why. Yeah. That firms that are successful, um, you know, never forget why they were created and the relationships that they build with their customers are, are first and foremost there. And they, they don't get pushed off that easily. Uh, unfortunately, you see the most tangible examples of that right now are the privately held firms. There are a few publicly held firms that hold on to that, but they really, it takes leadership that's very strong in the face of Wall Street pressure to just say why we exist, we're gonna stay on that path, okay? And yeah, that means there may be a few disappointing quarters. Our shareholders will ride with us. The board will ride with us, okay? Because we're gonna make some investments now that won't pay back till three or four quarters from now. And um, no, we're not, we're not going to, because we're in the middle of a downturn, fire the growth engine in this company to make the bottom line look good this quarter. We're not gonna do that. You know, so, there, there are many people that probably don't remember um, the breakup of AT&T. Uh, but my dad worked for Bell Labs and worked for Western Electric. And I remember my dad working on microwave towers. I remember my dad telling me that we would be watching movies uh, at home. I remember my dad uh, working on the modular jack program, which was doing away with screws. And when I think about uh, the breakup of these companies, the the, the the ability to have to be so out of R and D that is futuristic, and uh, that's a, a brilliant point in terms of uh, innovation out of entrepreneurial, underfunded organizations that need an instant return for investors uh, versus looking at the long haul in terms of dynamic change. Well, and, and yeah, and you look at, well, is it, is it, you know, there are some examples, but I, I think the world views them as sort of weird, like Elon Musk and, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the whole uh, Richard Branson, uh, and even to a certain extent, Michael Dell, who really uh, decide that, um, and, and Swagelock, by the way, okay, these are privately held firms. They don't need to go to the capital markets to get their cash. And they can just say, yeah, we're in this for the long run for the customers that need us, okay? And, and our innovations are gonna be on systems that make our brand come true when you absolutely can't fail. And you look at Elon Musk with the vision that, look, if we're not all 
fundamentally living different kinds of lives in terms of our attitude to, with transportation. Um, and then, you know, there, there are mavericks even in B2C that are doing this that just violate the rules and, uh, and they just say, um, you know, we're going to discover needs and go after them that um, people don't even know they've got and uh, find a way, find a way to make that work. So, I mean, there's plenty of entrepreneurial spirit alive and well. The other thing that's amazing to me is there's cash everywhere. I mean, probably the most abundant resource we have now that affirms and, you know, they want to know that's our cash. Well, you, use, you know, cash is everywhere, as cheap as it can be. Um, so maybe one of the things that we're looking for is maybe there, there are consortia. Look at what we did to find the vaccines. Okay, look at what happened. So what would happen if there was a, a operation warp speed for a 100-fold breakthrough in battery technology? Yeah. And we just said, look, this is critical. We've got a planet that's dying. We need to go to alternative energy, which involves, you know, we need better batteries so that they can really be electric cars, trucks, this and that. We can stop burning hydrocarbons. Where, where really is the research that goes, you know, and it was an interesting article in this month's Scientific American, Lou, that blew me away, that there's a scientist who found different form rock formations around the world where you could literally, with the right kind of technology, pull millions of tons of carbon dioxide out of the environment. In fact, his calculation said there's enough of this kind of capacity to sequester carbon dioxide to pull all of the carbon dioxide we have injected into the atmosphere since the 1800s out of the air. So, so it's physics, the physics of it is possible. So that kind of thinking says, oh, that's wild. That's yeah, but that's the kind of thinking that created the internet. That's the kind of thinking that created, you know, the better parts of the world we're in. That's the kind of thinking that'll get us out of this pandemic. Um, Ralph Kuhn, when, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I may be waxing a little too no, philosophical Ralph, here. One of the things that I wonder is, how do we make this, how do we, how do people that are trapped in organizations, how do we begin to influence this? Is this a role for an organization like MSI at some point to put these consortiums together? Well, I don't know. I thought about that with respect to ISBM, MSI, some of the clusters of um, where universities are working together on big projects. And um but it's intriguing, Lou, because it's it's you get into some of the discussions. I've wondered why some of these work and some of these don't. You know, you, you look at why is there a firm? Why why does a firm exist? Well, one of the reasons why is it's, it's you, you you want to include inside one structure the things that would be too complicated to contract out, right? You know, it's just you want a, um, a, you know, a frictionless connection between the different parts of the, what's inside the firm in terms of what's outside the firm. So that's really a, that organizational innovation um, that's needed, I think, to to get us out of to solve some of the big problems. Like why haven't why haven't we really come up with a fundamental cure for cancer? How long are we going to be stalled on the whole business of uh, Alzheimer's? And um, so, and, and, you know, I go, okay, well, those are big, big problems. Y yeah, so was COVID-19. Now, you could argue it was simpler, but look at how fast we essentially came up with a solution to that when, 
we really greased the skids between firms, intellectual property. We, we put the pedal to the metal. Uh, it was a, a global effort. And, you know, now people will argue, well, it's, it's a different scale uh, to solve a problem like cancer or to solve a problem like Alzheimer's. But um, those, I think, are the things when, and I, I maybe leave on this, that's why I came back to the classroom because I was getting depressed. And um, the, um, it, it, you know, to, to be with the Penn State MBAs, which are a very interesting group, because the Penn, Penn State is a very competent, very rigorous organization with no attitude. Penn State has never, maybe we couldn't afford it because, and we've had certainly blemishes on our brand, but Penn State doesn't hire people who come with a lot of attitude. Uh, and then we don't, our students go out and get stuff done. And that's why I love working with them. And they give us hope. They're gonna take on some of these big problems. And I think Gen Z will as well. And they're they're cutting through the crap, getting down to, um, yeah, the need to fix the climate is not just a political thing. We got to fix it. And if you guys would get out of the way and stop blabbering about it and get onto it, but it, it, it you know, you, you, you listen to just you all. Sorry, it's not going to work. You all want to try a way to get back to the way it was at lower pollution and more sustainability. That ain't the solution. We have to get to a whole new place that's genuinely sustainable. That's a different lifestyle. And we're willing to live that lifestyle. You're not. And that that to me is what gives me hope that we will solve some of these big problems with new organizational structures that the world will the world will continue to find a way, you know, to a much better place. It may take a while, but I, I have faith in I have faith in Gen Z and I have faith yep. in my students, mostly our millennial students. I think that uh, what is so powerful is this this basic thought that as we move into this new era, uh, the opportunity to rethink what the industrial age created, which was siloed organizations and uh, siloed industries uh, and companies within those industries. And just last night I, I reread, I'm trying to understand siloed organizations more deeply and what that experience is about. Just last night, I read, uh, reread uh, one of my favorite poets, uh, Robert Frost's Mending Wall. And the closing line is, good fences make good neighbors. And what we need is more than neighbors. We need a sense of being part of a family, if you will, solving problems. Well, and if you, depending on your beliefs, you could say, all right, no matter who's up there or out there, we just got handed a global problem, all of us. There's no one that's immune. Yeah. And um, so while the world and our country is busy dividing itself across all these different lines and things are happening, we're all in the boat with this virus as a common enemy. And we prove to ourselves, now again, it's not perfect. There are people who still won't take the vaccine or there are people who couldn't get the vaccine, et cetera. But we essentially proved to ourselves that if we blitzed it out against a big, big common enemy, we can we can take oh. that on. And in my view, um, the common enemy of climate change, the, the common en enemy of political division, the incredible progress that 
the millennials generation and Gen Z are doing with the common enemy of, um, yeah, you're different from me. You look different than I do, so I'm going to hold that against you. Or you have a different orientation than I do, and I'm going to hold that against you. The idea that, yeah, there's a long way to go with LBGTQA+, there's a long way to go with Black Lives Matter. But on the other hand, look at the dialogue we're having now. And um, so anyway, I'm very hopeful on that. We may be a little bit afield from the point of view of the pendulum swings. And that's part of it, by the way. If in a physical system, if you hit it really hard, it doesn't just move in one direction. Typically, it's it it flips around. It goes into a harmonic motion. Now, it might settle out at a different place, but there's always you, you know, it's it's rare that you you know, you don't see this kind of harmonic motion in a system. So that means, you know, it's not going to continually get better. We'll go three steps forward and one step back. But as long as we go more steps forward than back on these big issues, we'll be fine. And um, so, you know, kind of back to, I have faith in firms like, you know, that that you see here, and particularly a firm like Swagelock, knows what they want their brand to mean, cares about it, understands their connection to the world, and stays the course. That That to me is a way you can make progress through the pendulum swing. And I'm sure there are pendulums swinging at Swagelock too, that, you know, that there'll be people who want a better return and there'll be people who want to take cost out of it. But at its core, they're committed to um, a level of experience and a relational value that's deep, deep, deep in the firm. And I hope that I I think that will live on. And the firms that um, are going to succeed and bring us through this, I think, are sort of the same way. I have great respect for, I don't know, I have never worked deeply with Pfizer, but I suspect that um, I've worked with some other firms in that in that business. Um, and um, now there, the, those are healthcare professionals. They are very passionate about what they do and they see their mission very clearly. So, so I don't know, uh, Lou, I hope this is what you wanted. We've gone this all around the mulberry bush here. <laughs> Uh, thank you so very much, Ralph. You are amazing, and um, I am so grateful for our friendship and relationship over the years, and so glad to be able to share your extraordinary insights. Uh, of not not just in B two B, but life. You you are. We, we went a long way around a lot of topics here, Lou. If you want to pick one of these topics and drill into it with a few meaningful uh, epithets, we can probably do that sometime. But thank you for having me. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed this with you. You are absolutely a philosopher physicist. <laughs> well, I don't know, Lou. Uh, there are other folks who might frame that in the term bullshit artist, but <laughs> you've got to take both when they come along. Thank you so very much. Thank you, Lou. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Clued In with Lou Carbone. If the advancement of the practice of experience management's financial and emotional impact drives you, please reach out to Lou on LinkedIn or visit experienceengineering.com or email us at info at expeng.com. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org. 
for more resources.